So when I was growing up, uh, there was there were these peony bushes, and maybe some of you have peony bushes and flowers that sat right on the, the border between our yard and our neighbor's yard. And every spring, summer, they would bloom, this beautiful bloom of flowers. Well, one year, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but one year, myself, my brother, and a few of our friends decided before the flowers bloomed, we were going to pull all the heads off the peony flowers and decide to just throw them at each other. I don't know, boys do stuff like that. It's kind of stupid, but hey, it was a lot of fun, I'll have to admit, because if you've ever thrown like the head of a flower at someone, it's hard enough to kind of sting and, and hurt a little bit because you don't want to get hit by it, but soft enough not really do any damage. So it's like a snowball fight in the middle of summer. It was so much fun. We had a blast doing it. But we also got in a ton of trouble for doing it. Well, I don't know if a ton. Um, I was asking my mom about this memory. She's like, I think I got a little bit upset about that. And I was like, yeah, I don't remember entirely how mad you got, but I know it was mad enough that we never did it again. So we, we had this moment where we took flowers and we threw them at each other. Now, what was the problem? Look, when it comes to like, the amount of destruction that we caused, it was relatively small. I mean, flowers grow back, no big deal. But here's the problem. Flowers are not for fighting. Flowers are not for throwing at each other. We were misusing the purpose of the flowers. Flowers are meant to be enjoyed, to be experienced, to look at their beauty, marvel at their beauty, smell them, be refreshed. There's this sense of pleasure and enjoyment. That's the purpose of flowers. For us to rip off the heads and throw them at each other, not only were we misusing the purpose, we were actually missing the purpose. We were not actually using the flowers in the way they were being intended. And sadly, Christians... We do this with the truths of our faith. So often, we fight rather than enjoy. We fight over doctrines rather than enjoy them. And one of those doctrines that Christians have had a history of arguing and debating about is predestination. I don't know what you think about predestination. Maybe I even say the word and some of you just start to kind of buck up and go, oh boy, what's he going to say? How's he going to talk about it? Here we go. And yes, predestination is one of those topics that the church has wrestled with for really its entire existence. It's a deep, profound truth, and there are multiple ways of looking at it, and it's hard to understand, and so there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of debate, and it's okay to some degree. It's good to have discussion and debate to help us better understand particular truths. And if, if you're thinking about just in the case of First City Church, this conversation can happen in the midst of our church as well. So I don't want to minimize the, the proper place for discussion on predestination. In First City Church, if we look at our doctrinal statement, we do take a position on this. We don't just sort of go, ah, oh, we don't really know, we don't really care, we don't really have a way to explain that. No, we actually have thoughts and beliefs uh, and, and the thing is, is not everybody in this church necessarily agrees 100% with First City's stance on it, and that is fine. We want a community united in Christ, not united in predestination beliefs. <laughs> so uh, what, what, I'm, what I'm wanting us to recognize here is that this is a big topic, and there's been a lot of debate and a lot of discussion. And, and it is perfectly fine that us as a church, we can have both a belief and a doctrinal statement on it while also having members and people part of the community that might not 100% agree with that. And that all is fine. But 
if all we do is spend time either fighting about predestination and fighting about that or just sitting around the dinner table during, and having fun talking about it, we're missing the purpose. If all this is an intellectual debate, whether to score points and win an argument or just to have some fun, we miss the point. We miss what the flower is actually for, to build our confidence in the love and purposes of God, to build our hope in the plan of God and the salvation of God. This is the point of the teaching of predestination. And this is where Romans 8 takes us, not into abstract theological debate, but into building our confidence in the plan and purpose of God and celebrating God's goodness to us. And so that's where I want to go this morning as we look at Romans 8, 28 through 30. I want our faith to be built and strengthened in God's love and God's power towards us. I want our hope to be deepened as we live in this season of groaning and suffering and sorrow, knowing that God is at work and God is going to accomplish his purposes. And I hope what that does is well up in our hearts a sense of worship, a sense of glory that our God is great and he is powerful and he is good and he is working in our lives. That's where I want to go this morning as we reflect on this topic of predestination. So two points that I'm going to try to make. The first is the purpose of predestination, and the second is the process of predestination. So the purpose and the process. But before we jump into the text, there's just two, there's kind of two points that I think we need to kind of make at the outset. When you're talking about predestination, we need to say two things, because there's two errors that we can fall into, uh, excuse me, other than just fighting and talking about it just for fun. When dealing with this doctrine, one of the errors that we have to avoid is arrogance. Thinking because we're maybe intellectually smart or sharp with the Bible, and we know how to get into the scriptures, maybe we think deep thoughts and we're good with philosophy, we still need to be humble. This is what John Calvin, who is one of the theologians most associated with this doctrine of predestination, says about the importance of humility. He says, first then, let them remember that when they inquire into predestination, they are penetrating the sacred precincts of divine wisdom. If anyone with carefree assurance breaks into this place, he will not succeed in satisfying his curiosity and he will enter a labyrinth from which he can find no exit. For it is not right for man unrestrainedly to search out things that the Lord has willed to be hid in himself, things which he would have us revere, but not understand that through this also he should fill us with wonder. Humility is so important when we talk about this doctrine. The second, we can dismiss it. We can say, hey, this is just left for the theological debates and the fun little discussion over drinks and just say, this has really no practical purpose in our lives. That's another error we want to avoid. Again, hear what Calvin has to say. For scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit in which as nothing is omitted that is both necessary and useful to know, so nothing is taught but what is expedient to know. Therefore, we must guard against depriving believers of anything disclosed about predestination in Scripture, 
lest we seem either wickedly to defraud them of the blessing of their God or to accuse and scoff at the Holy Spirit for having published what is in any way profitable to suppress. So if we dismiss this doctrine, what we're saying is this. We could be robbing people of blessing that God has for them, or we could be saying, you know, the Holy Spirit put that in there, but it, it really, he didn't need to, or it's kind of superfluous, and so he just kind of wasted his time. We don't want to commit either error. So humility, but also leaning in and understanding the importance. God put this in here for a reason. And so what do we understand that reason to be as we go and turn our attention to Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. So let me start by asking this question. How do you know everything is going to be okay? How do you know everything is going to work out? Look, we, we have this fundamental belief that we want everything to work out for the good, to work out in our favor. We expend a lot of energy towards fixing what is broken in ourselves and broken in the world, and we do so with the hope that, hey, it's going to work out, right? How do we know? What confidence do we have that things are going to work out? Now, maybe we can take the religious approach and sort of think, if I do all the religious things I need to do, if I am moral in the ways I need to be moral, if I'm a good person, if I do all of these things, then in the end, my good will outweigh my bad, and it will all work out. But again, how do you know? How, how do you know you've done enough good? How do you know that you've put enough work in? Because there's always more work that can be done. You can always be better than you are. You can always try to fix things even more than they are. And so if you try to set this standard of hope and expectation in our own performance, we're going to come up short because we're going to realize we never measure up. And then we're if we're honest, we're left with a sense of wishful thinking. How do I really know? I don't really know. I'm going to try my best and hope the chips fall in my favor. Look, a lot of people live that way, and they do a lot of good living that way, but that's not confidence. That is a shoddy, shallow hope. Or maybe you really don't have any expectation. Maybe you don't particularly believe in God, or you think when you die, this is all there is, and so once you die, it's over. And so for you, you might think, well, I hope it works out, but when I die, it's all done, so it's probably not that big of a deal. But here's what's interesting. Very few people who live that way follow the logical conclusion. Very few people who live that way recognize or, or will live with, hey, if it's all going to just disappear one day, and if I die and it doesn't matter, then I should just do whatever I want. Like, why care about this? Well, why care about the good of myself and other people in society? Why fight for things like justice and righteousness and goodness and peace if it's all going to end? Like, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. If you're in the room and that's what you believe, I'm thankful you're inconsistent. <laughs> it's a good thing. But again, you're left with this sense of, well, I don't know. There's no way to know for sure. And so if we have this hope and this expectation, this desire that things are going to work out for the best, we need to have a sense of surety, a sense that this is actually going to happen. Otherwise, our hope is meaningless and it's shallow. And so in the midst of that question of how do we know things are going to work out, here's what Romans 8.28 says. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, we know, Paul says, this is an assurance. This is a confidence. Paul is not saying, hey, we hope for the best. Maybe it'll work out. You know, odds are it's going to work out. It's like a 95% chance it's going to work out. No, Paul's saying, we know this. This is sure. This is, we can be confident in this. Though we are in the midst of groaning, suffering, sorrow, sin, difficulties, we know all things will work together for good. For those who love God, Paul is saying, for those who belong to Christ, those who follow Jesus, who love God, it's going to work out. It's going to happen. Why? Why can Paul speak with such confidence? Because of God's purpose in predestination. Those who have been called according to God's purpose in predestination have this confidence. Here's what verse 29 tells us. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So here's what this passage means. There's a lot in that verse. But here's our confidence, church. Here's what we need to recognize. Here's why the doctrine of predestination is so important for us. The confidence that we know in spite of sin, in spite of sorrow, in spite of suffering, in spite of all the brokenness around us, God has predetermined, he has predestined, he has purposed, he has planned that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That that whatever else happens in our lives, no matter how bad and broken, if you belong to Jesus, God's predetermined plan for you is that you will be like Jesus. That's our confidence. That's our surety. That's our hope. If you are in Christ, if you are in God, then you will be like Jesus. All things are going to work together for good. And what does that mean? It's not generic, as Eric pointed out. It's not just some just generic, happy, good feels. It's that you will be like Jesus. Look, if you think of the nature of humanity... We were made in the image of God. This is 100% true. Scripture teaches this. But we are also, as Romans 5, earlier in the book of Romans, it says we were also born in Adam, our first father, the first man. And Adam, made in the image of God, rebels against God, sins against God. And in that, that image is marred. It's broken. And the fact that you and I are born in Adam We follow in his footsteps, meaning that our image, the image of God in us, has been marred with sin and rebellion. We are in our father Adam's image in our sin. And look, you feel that, and you know that. You experience that. The brokenness that you carry in you. The the ways that you can identify your sin and the ways you hate yourself for it. You you beat yourself up. You, You can even feel the sense of disgust at yourself because of the sin that is in you. You can cover it with pride. You can cover it with your performance. But if we're honest, we feel it and we know it. This image is marred. It's broken. And then on top of that is the way that the sin of other people has marred us and scarred us and harmed us. And so if we take an honest, just raw, 
look at ourselves, what do we see? We see darkness, we see dysfunction, we see ugliness. This is the image of Adam that we were born into. But here is God's sovereign, predestinating power in you if you are in Christ. It means no matter how ugly this is, no matter how ugly it's gotten, no matter how much sin has been thrown at you, no matter how much you've been scarred by other people, the trajectory of your life is to look like something greater. The second Adam, as Romans 5 says, a greater image, Jesus Christ, who steps into our world to undo what the first Adam did and replace that sin and scarring and ugliness and brokenness with godliness, righteousness, beauty with himself. God's predestinating power towards you is this, that you would be conformed to Jesus. And think of how great this is. Jesus Christ, the one who embodies love perfectly, who embodies grace perfectly, who embodies righteousness and goodness and joy, who is self-sacrificing and loved. All the virtues that we long for, all the virtues that we see our society crying out for, perfectly captured in Christ. Jesus is these things. He's the embodiment of these things. And that's what God is making you into, an image so beautiful and profound. Friends, this is why the doctrine of predestination matters. Because here's how we live. Man, when I'm reading my Bible, when I'm praying, when I'm serving, when I'm doing all the things that I need to do, I feel really good about the image of Christ in me. I feel really good about the trajectory I'm on. I feel really good about what God's doing. My confidence is high. But when sin comes crashing in, what happens? Boom, confidence bottoms out. We put our confidence in our performance. And what this passage is saying, no, our confidence is in the predestinating power of God to conform us. Yes, we work at this. The habits of grace that we've talked about, those things matter. We give ourselves to that. But our ultimate confidence is in this. God is predestined. He's predetermined. It's an unbreakable power and trajectory in your life that you will be made like Jesus. That's the flower that we need to smell. I don't care how much you like to dive into this philosophically. I don't, know, I don't care how much you like to dive into this theologically. And if you are a big, academic, smart person who can understand all this stuff, wonderful, that is a gift but if you aren't stopping to smell this, you're missing out. Oh, it's a beautiful truth meant to give you confidence in God's power in your life and his work in your life. Anchor your hope there. A couple other things to highlight from this verse. It says, we're conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean? Well, there's two layers of meaning here. First, this label, firstborn, that Paul uses is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. In Colossians 1.18, the Apostle Paul writing in that letter says, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the first to be resurrected, the first to experience resurrection glory. So you want to know what that image is that you're headed towards? It's all of the ethical beauties of Jesus it's all the love and the goodness and the grace and the peace and the joy, but it's also glorified bodies, bodies free from sin, bodies free from disease and sickness and illness, bodies never to be corrupted ever again, bodies that will never die. 
that glorified risen Jesus that is resurrected and reigning in heaven right now in all his glory, that's the image you and I are headed for if we're in Christ. He's the firstborn, the first to be resurrected, but he is bringing many with him and conforming them into his image. So that's one layer. The second layer is firstborn has this, speaks to the position of Christ. So if you've been with us in Romans 8, you've seen the Apostle Paul has used family language. We're adopted into the family of God. And in ancient society, the firstborn in a family held the preeminent position among the children. And so Christ saying Christ is the firstborn means among all of the children of God, he is the preeminent, he is the ultimate one. And so when we are conformed to his image, here's what happens. Christ is exalted. His position as the glorious king, as the savior, as the all in all, is put on display. Christ will be exalted and glorified in us being conformed to his image. So here's the beauty, church. You know, if you're a Christian, you live with this burden that Christ would be glorified in your life. I hope you do. And we try to live our lives, and a lot of times that's a struggle and that's messy, but we're trying to glorify Christ in our lives. Here is what the predestinating power of God in your life means. Hey, when it's all said and done, it's going to happen. It might be fits and starts right now. It might be struggling right now. But when it's all said and done, you are going to glorify Christ. Christ is going to be exalted in you because you're going to be made in his image. And this is the power of God in our lives. This is the glory of God in our lives. This is the beauty. This is the privilege we, as we become more and more like Christ, we get to exalt him. We get to show the world his worth and his glory. And all of that is guaranteed because of the predestinating power of God. And so all things work together for good because God has predestined we'd be conformed to the image of Christ. All of the suffering, all of the wrestle you're going through, all the sorrow, all the sin, all the mess, Look, all of that is working God's purpose that you would be more like Jesus. And it makes sense. I know this is hard, but it makes sense that our path would be suffering. As Paul said earlier in Romans 8, because why? That's the exact path Jesus walked. Jesus walked a path of suffering to glory. And so if we are going to be conformed to his image, it's the same path that we walk. But in all of that, we have confidence all of that we have confidence because of the predestinating power of God in our lives. Now look, there's going to be a lot of things about God's sovereignty in our lives and the reason God does what he does and the work that he does in our lives that we're going to have no idea what he's doing. That's going to be those things hidden that we don't understand and we can't know, but we can know this much. The end of it all, you looking like Jesus and Jesus being exalted for all eternity. That's our hope and that's our confidence, church. That's why predestination matters. That's why understanding this matters. So that's the purpose. Now let's consider the process. This might seem like a really strange term, process of predestination. I'm sorry, I was looking for alliteration and process is the best word I could come up with, but I think it captures some of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. So to talk about the process of predestination isn't to say we can peel back the curtain and see all of the machinery in the mind of God. That's not what we're saying. But what we, are, what we can know, what Scripture does give us, is that there is our major categories, major sort of points 
of process to show how God's predestination plays out in our lives. This is what he writes in verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So much about predestination we cannot know. But here's what we can know. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined to be conformed to Christ, he foreknew them. Look, when we hear the word foreknew, we probably think of God's knowledge, God knowing everything. Yes, God knows everything. We absolutely affirm that. But what is in view here is a little bit different. The majority of time the New Testament uses the term foreknew or foreknowledge, it's not talking about God just knowing all things, though he does. It's actually more focused. It's more relational. Look at what the object of foreknew is. Those, those people. This isn't talking about God's exhaustive knowledge. This is about talking about God's relationship to people. It's talking about that in eternity past, when God's, when God's plan for history was just an idea in his mind, what he did is he set his love on you before you were even born, before you had done anything good or bad, right or wrong, before you existed, God set his love on you. What this means is that predestination and all of its outworking and power in your life starts with this, God loves you. And he knew you in eternity past. And he set that love on you and determined you're going to look like my son. And I'm going to work amazing power that you may be glorified like my son, that you may glorify my son. He loved you. Now, now think of this this way. Those of you who are parents, moms in particular, before your kids were born, when you were pregnant with them, you didn't know them. They hadn't done a single thing right or wrong. They hadn't been obedient or disobedient. But you loved them. You love them. You foreknew them in that sense. You had a relationship with them before anything ever happened in their life. This is an analogy. It's not a perfect analogy, but it is an analogy to how we recognize God loved us. He foreknew. Predestination is based in love. Those whom he predestined, he also called. This speaks of God's sovereign power to resurrect our hearts the, the hearts of those who are spiritually dead, and bring them back to life. As we said before, born into Adam, born into sin, we are rebellious and sinful. We are those who are prideful and selfish. We've been greedy, and we have been manipulative. We have been sexually immoral. We have been liars, manipulators, those who use other people for our own selfish ends. Those who want to puff up our own image and our own identity and, and do whatever we can to make ourselves look good. Oh, we have been abusers and we have been racist and we have been religious idolaters. Like all of us in this room have a story of sin, dark sin, ugly sin. But in the midst of that, in the midst of your ugly sin, rebellion, God calls you. Through the gospel and by the power of the Spirit, your dead heart is bid to come alive. 
God looks at you and he says, my son, my daughter, come alive. Through Christ, come alive. He calls you. Look, the reason you are in Christ, why are you in Christ? Those of you that profess faith. Is it because you're smarter than the, other, the people who aren't? Is it because you're more humble than the people that, you are, that aren't? Do you have more knowledge? I mean, put any reason why you are in Christ and someone else isn't, and it would be the wrong answer. <laughs> the reason you are in Christ is because God called you, and his Spirit brought you alive. And here's the beauty. No matter how deep and dark that pit went, no matter how far you sunk, no matter how ugly it, it got, that call of God, that power of God, the spirit of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ went down to the deepest, darkest pit and it made you alive and he brought you out. That is the power of predestination. That is God's purpose in predestination. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and those who he predestined, he called. And for those who have been called, he justified. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through Jesus Christ, our resurrected and reigning king, we are justified. It means that the sin, that the condemnation that you and I deserve, the judgment that you and I deserve, rightly deserve, because we have rebelled against God and we have wrecked and marred other people and his good creation. That judgment you and I deserve, Jesus stepped into this world and he took it on himself. He took the judgment and the punishment, all of it on himself so that you and I could be justified, so our guilt could be removed, so we could be set free and forgiven. You see, Jesus Christ accomplishing salvation for us, Jesus Christ coming into the world, living a perfect life for us, dying for us, being resurrected in power, ascending into heaven, all of that that puts his glory on display is good news for you and me because it means we can now be justified means that our guilt can be removed forever. This is the power of predestination in your life. Jesus Christ cleansing you, forgiving you, canceling the debt that was held against you forever. No condemnation, set free from the law of sin and death. And finally, those whom he justified, he glorified. It's not that God just removes the guilt of our sin, as we've been saying, He's transforming us. He's conforming us to the image of his son. And at the end of all of that, glory. Glory. And notice something about it's glorified. It doesn't say he will glorify them. It says glorified. Past tense. How can Paul talk about something in the past tense that hasn't happened yet? That's the power of predestination. Certainty assurance, so sure of God's power and God's love in your life that you can talk about something that will happen as if it already had happened. Church, we have that confidence. We have that power working in us. This is why we rejoice in this flower. This is why we smell this flower. This is why we're refreshed in this flower. This is not why we throw this flower at other people. So church, the power and the glory of predestination. It is to build our hope. It is to build and strengthen our confidence in Christ. 
This is why we can stand in our suffering in our own lives, we can stand in the suffering of our community, and we can work for God's glory because we're confident. But in conclusion, let me say this. We celebrate God's predestination and the hope it gives us, but let us never forget that God's predestining us had nothing to do with us. It isn't as if God looked into the future and said, hey, this person was going to do good things, and so I'm going to predestine them. No. It has nothing to do with you and I and our performance. It has nothing to do with our moral goodness or our religious performance or the fact that we work hard and try to be honest. It has nothing to do with our religious activity or the fact that we've been baptized or the way we vote. Nothing to do with us. It's all of God and all of Christ. It's because God is gracious and loving and it's because of Christ's life his death, and his resurrection, that all of this, all of this benefit is ours. This is why we celebrate it, because of who God is and who Christ is. And so let me conclude celebrating this by just reading over us Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, which is the Apostle Paul again celebrating this truth in all the good that it brings and all the glory of God that it reveals. So receive this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray.